email from the major. Uh, I can't recall when it was. Um, some weeks ago, actually. Um, you know, I got something. I have something called arts parts. What uh, sent to, that were sent to me ostensibly pieces of the crashed Roswell saucer. And we've been putting them through a rigorous scientific testing. As a matter of fact, the results, uh, very anomalous results of that testing, are available to be seen on my webpage now. Uh, and it's, it's remarkable material, bismuth and magnesium layered uh, in a way that has a lot of people jumping. I, I don't want to get too far out of the game right now. Uh, and some of the uh, aluminum parts and the spectrography and the... Uh, scanning uh, microscope uh, pictures are all up on the Internet. It's www.artbell.com, www.artbell.com. And I suspect, uh, if not already, and I, I, I know Keith, so he's probably got a link to the major's webpage already as well up there, so you'd be well to visit my webpage and take a look. The complete scientific report is there. But I, I got a piece of email from the major not long ago, a couple weeks, three weeks ago, and you just mentioned in an offhand way, Major, that you had had your team for practice or for fun or for whatever reason working on my Roswell parts. Yes, we actually do that. Uh, on my training, I train 20 people a year in this in-between uh, contract work that we do, and uh, I used your... Um, your your metallic object, metallic pieces, as training targets. Hmm. Well, I want to know. I have some preliminary results, but it will cost you one of those Art Bell watches. How's that for effort? <laughs> <laughs> it can easily be arranged. <laughs> Only kidding. Actually, um, uh, let me tell you what what I assumed that we were dealing with. Um, and uh, when when my students are trained, they are not told what their targets are. They're trained in the blind. Their unconscious is trained to do the, do the work. Uh, it's similar to flying a plane at night. Uh, you have to rely on your instruments, and uh, you really can't. You, if you do not know how to read those instruments, the uh, analogy here is if you do not know understand the structure of remote viewing, you're going to slip off the target. Mm -hmm. Trainees are not allowed to graduate until they can get it right every single time. So as advanced training targets, day six or seven, I slipped uh, a few trainees' uh, arts parts. <laughs> when we do this, I've never seen those uh, parts on your web page. So I simply, I, I actually called them that, and uh, pieces, uh, metallic pieces, and I called them in italics arts parts. <laughs> the collective unconscious can do the rest. We know that it can. Um, but uh, some interesting results. I assumed as a, a former project officer for very secret projects, both aerospace and metallurgical, that we were probably dealing with scrap parts. Right. Scrap electronic parts or something like that. Mm -hmm. As project manager, I had many scientists working for me, uh, university professors and industrialists, and they would be making things that I needed on the battlefield in space or somewhere else. And I'd bring pieces of those back to my office, all of us who were in positions similar to I, had things like this, uh, googahs and doodads on our office. Uh, sometimes we'd even bring them home, unless they were radioactive. And uh, many times these projects failed. If a corporation, say the Alcoa Corporation, had a classified contract with the government to build something, uh, to make some new uh, uh, sheet metal, and that didn't work out right because it was penetrated by a tungsten bullet or something like that, then All this right. metal would became scrap. I felt that that's what you were dealing with. Another case, uh, something that's interesting to point out, the Russians 
the former Soviets, their metallurgy was sometimes far superior to U.S. metallurgy. Right. Don't forget, they were making titanium submarines, behemoths that we could not produce. Hmm. So keep that in mind as we talk about this. I did as the results started to come in, and these are uh, initial results. But I do, I do want to talk about them. All right. Okay. Uh, the parts are, are actually uh, they're land-based, uh, earth-based. They're not alien. Okay. And, uh, but their, uh, their story is very interesting, and I think I'll illustrate it with a, with a story. Let's call the story hypothetical for the moment. Okay. A certain scientist, who I might know, is approached one day with some pieces similar to Art's parts. And he is asked, how have you gotten a hold of alien technology? And the scientist says, well, uh, I don't have alien technology. Well, we're looking at your blueprints for a specific thing that you submitted to the patent office, a specific uh, set of parts. Mm -hmm. And uh, this happens to be the same thing that crashed in the desert about 1950, uh, alien uh, spacecraft. And the scientist says, well, no, I designed this myself. <clears throat> well, Art's parts are about uh, 16 years young. Uh, this is from a prototype vehicle that's flipped back in time. Arts parts are from a time machine. Really? Yes. I like that. Yeah. It's All about right. uh, 11 or 12 years out there. In fact, we can even uh, become aware of the actual scientists that are working on that today. How's that for a paradox problem? This is a series of vehicles that the military team that I ran started to perceive uh, uh, about 1984-85. We started to gain information on these things. That essentially, let me let me put this uh, put make sure that this picture is is set in your listeners' minds. A group of scientists about uh, 10 years from now, perhaps less, happen to test a prototype design which is spinning, and this is very important. I'll get back to this in a moment, of the, uh, some of the physics of, uh, of how this happened. This device, instead of going up and out into space, disappears. And it flies about 200 miles from its test point in the southwest desert and crashes about 50 years earlier in wow. the desert. Now, the people that find this, about 1950, uh, the individuals that find it, cordon off the area, and this was not a Roswell crash, by the way. Roswell was alien. This was not. I'll get to that some other time. They find this, uh, these pieces, and they automatically assume, because it's probably four generations of technology ahead of anything they had in 1950, is that it's alien. Must sure. Be, right? Metallurgy automatically. Sure. So they hold on to it until one day somebody notices that a design that a certain uh, uh, scientist is submitting to the patent office matches this. So it must be alien, right? Huh. <laughs> The metallurgical processes that you see in front of you uh, and on the screen are really not that far from what we can do now. If we really wanted to put the money into it, we could produce the kinds of pressures that would be necessary to produce the kind of density and those kinds of alloys. It could be done, and I'm sure uh, technicians have, uh, have said as much, but they're not here yet. It's slipped back. Well, this, uh, this bismuth... Um, um piece of the supposed skin of the craft, whatever kind of craft it is, um, while it, it could be done, uh, I don't think it has been done. We've had people checking very carefully. Nobody's done it. They don't know what it could be. Some sort of uh, 
a superconductor or collector of energy on the skin of a craft of some kind. So what you say could be? It's about another generation out there of technology. And uh, it just looks back. But I, I want to illustrate uh, how the, this, this first uh, event occurred. In uh, phenomenology, there's an occasional report of when a tornado passes by a certain place that later people find pieces of straw and sometimes wood uh, right through a glass window. The that's window right. supposedly fused around the straw. That's right. Just so happens that the vortex that's created by tornadoes, when the tornado turns a specific way at a certain angle, depending on where it is, does something with time, bends or shifts time, slows it down as the earth is turning. And the earth turns into this place where two things begin to share the same space. And the tornado moves away, and now they do share the same space. Just spinning this vortex, and the angle of the vortex is very important to this discovery. Time travel, of course, as we know it now, as most physicists state, would require an energy equivalent to a black hole to affect. Could right. be done, but you need that. It's not within our tech base to do it. Uh, and yet, it does seem to be a little trick that nature plays at, at certain times. And uh, one of these prototype devices fell into that trick and slipped back. Wow. And that's where my parts came from. It would appear that your parts fit a class of objects that we in my company know to be those things, yes. Uh, Time travel, by the way, is uh, uh, it's quite a real thing out there in the cosmos as far as we're concerned. Uh, you know, having had uh, 15 years of experience looking at things from NASA and NORAD that they don't talk about, uh, vehicles, races that use uh, time travel and uh, teleportation, they need time standards, as you know. If you're traveling along a gravity uh, uh, wave uh, or along a gravity surface and you pop in somewhere, you need to know not only where you are but what time it is. And so pulsars and things similar to pulsars are, are used to, to uh, as a, a galactic time standard, if you will, to know when you are rather than just uh, where you are, in addition to where you are. Crop circles, for instance, are specifically used for on-the-ground registration marks, the crop circles that we talk about that are so enigmatic to, to most people. Uh, for us in, in SciTech, we know what they are. They're purposely put in perishable media, ephemeral media, to last only one day so that you know on the ground, right there in a local uh, environment, a tactical environment, if you will, what day it is. Huh. So that when you transit time again and you see that specific crop circle that's in a registration uh, book of some type, you know what day you are in. All right. Because you know that in that book, on that specific day, some uh, registration vehicle made that mark. It's not a vehicle. It's actually a small globe. We, we, well, we will make... Uh, that uh, SciTech contract available to the public via our Transition 3000 website in the future. All right. Let us understand, then, remote viewing does time travel of its own in a sense. It doesn't. It doesn't. Time drops out of the equation. Mind is outside of time. There is no time in the collective unconscious. If I look at Art Bell's life as a remote viewer, a technical remote viewer, I see you from birth to death uh, and, and points in between. There is no time there. You're, you are a gestalt of information, a pattern of information resonant in this collective unconscious. That's not to say you don't have a soul or personality. Of course you do. Sure. But in terms of, of, of information, 
this is an information collection technology, and there is no time involved. We look left to see the past or right to see the future, metaphorically speaking, and we just download information. Mm-hmm. Well, we know about the past is very about the future, and the last time I do, you scared how to meet everybody else uh, as you look to the reach. And uh, now, I want to underscore this. I'm uh, going to repeat what you said. I want to underscore by saying that uh, I was three days old. It was on the news, Major. How was a remarkable story of plays that aren't felt. And as you said, that they're wrong, uh, or may have been wrong, that our climate is much more tenuous, much more fragile than we ever thought it was. They went way beyond that. They said there is a significant possibility, they now believe, that we may be headed toward what they called another dust bowl, or even went beyond that, and said they can see our plain states, our farm states, becoming deserts. Not only that, but that that process is actually underway right now. And that's a frightening, frightening uh, uh, possibility. And the moment I saw it, I almost fell off my couch, and I got a lot of other faxes of the same sort, hearkening back to what you said, what you see coming. Now, about ten years ago, that's quite some time ago, uh, while you were working on other projects, you said... You saw babies dying. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, the military team actually, uh, again, as training officer, I would provide the team with advanced training targets. Actually, I was slipping in a enigma. We, uh, I did not want my team to fall into an ennui to become bored with just working military uh, research institutes and facilities. And I wanted to make sure that they had a wide variety of targets. So I would slip targets like this uh, uh, under their noses. And same way they got arts parts. The same way, yes, essentially that kind of uh, thing. <laughs> yes. And we were picking up, uh, we were looking into the future, and we were looking at certain things and uh, in ways that, that we, we do. Uh, I don't want to uh, get into all the technologies tonight, but, but we the team was describing and sketching dying babies um, over wide areas, and uh, we, we traced back the source of the dying babies, and they were uh, cows, cow's milk. Cow's milk was killing dying babies. And uh, late, in later years, actually about uh, four years ago, I had SciTech take a look at the, uh, the cause, the causal agent behind that. And it appears to be a virus in, in the milk. We think it's a bovine AIDS. We're not positive about that, but we think that it is. Something like a bovine AIDS that's transmitted by dairyman's needles, the same needle that's used to inject each cow. An immune problem of some kind. With the babies, yes. Uh, we, we think that their planet's immunosuppressed, babies are immunosuppressed, their mothers are immunosuppressed, and now all of a sudden they are toxicologically insulted with uh, a, vi- a virus that's similar to AIDS and just wreaks havoc with this nascent immune system of theirs. And we do see uh, baby, human babies dying in droves. Droves. Worldwide. Worldwide, yes. Um, do you... any, uh, any, any country that, that, that where babies drink cow's milk, and that's a lot of countries. That's a lot of countries. Uh, do you, do you, I guess I've got to ask, do you come up with numbers? Is there any way to know percentages or? Uh, we can't come up with numbers. We can come up with a pie chart types of uh, percentages. Alphanumerics and, and uh, numerics are beyond their capabilities, but we can get rough uh, figures. And uh, we haven't done that in this case with any country in, in this specific case. Just a lot. So, so many. Yes, many. Um, 
are you able to look then beyond that to see if um, that is alleviated or the situation worsens or how society uh, deals with this? We have not looked at anything that uh, we have not looked at the situation beyond that. I do not know if there are any uh, ameliorating factors or mitigating factors uh, vis-a-vis that particular problem. So uh, I don't have that information. How far off is it? Oh, it looks like uh, it's within the next several years. We're coming up real close. One of the things that SciTech is doing now is establishing milestones along a timeline so that when one event occurs, people will know that the, what the next one is and the time uh, between them so that they can prepare. Prepare meaning uh, take your babies off of cow's milk, uh, start digging under the ground because heavy winds are coming, move from one area to another because you'll have no fresh water, those kinds. Of things. Um, I guess you can look right to the future and left to the past. Is it possible? Uh, the past, of course, is known. It's a known quantity. So I would think that as you look into the past uh, with your trainees, with uh, your residents, you can calibrate what you do to the left, can't you? Uh, we can we can get distances and uh, yeah, we can get distances in time for unknowns, for instance. If you give me something and you don't know what where it was, what time it was fabricated, what era or age, we can establish that. What I'm referring to, though, is, and we're at the bottom of the hour here, uh, there are known events in time, in the thread of time. As you look back, you can calibrate what you see. That's correct. Uh, yeah. That's what I wanted to know. We All right. can bracket the event. Exactly. Good Major, night. stay right there. We'll be right back to you, Major. Ed Dames, Cytex. Ed Dames is with me. He'll be right back. Back now to Major Ed Dames. Uh, Major, so you can look to the left, you can calibrate with history, and then let us now again look to the right. Again, uh, hearkening back to uh, what ABC ran about the farm belt, scared the hell out of me. Then I've got an Omaha Daily uh, Herald story here that says, a, a longer look at Plains climate suggests an unsettling possibility, and they go into exactly the same thing here. Now, one of the things you said to me in the facts you sent that, that got us going in the last show was that, uh, was that uh, the um, jet stream is going to come down on deck. <laughs> and the, the jet stream, of course, uh, wriggles and rifts uh, all over the place, but you say it's going to come down on deck and there will be winds of between, what, 150 and 300 miles an hour on land? Well, watch the jet stream. It's a really good uh, indicator for how chaotic the atmosphere is going to quickly become. And it, will, it may not come all the way down to the deck, but it will come close enough to, provide, to uh, furnish us with some very heavy-duty microbursts and some vicious storms. High, high, very serious winds. You'll need to be underground or in very solid structures when this happens. But moreover, the skies will become very dark over the mid-latitudes where these winds are high. And that's going to preclude growing crops the way we do now. And there'll be no light. That's, that's, that's what got to me about what ABC said. I mean, we're already on the way. We're already, we have crops uh, in serious trouble. Our wheat crop in the country now. Um, is in very serious trouble. Cattle are being sold off, um, pennies on the dollar. It's horrible, and this is, I guess, just the beginning? It's just the beginning, yes. Uh, we've 
essentially damage the uh, the Earth's stratosphere, the Earth's atmosphere beyond repair. There is not just a big ozone hole. What scientists generally are not aware of is that there's a deterioration of the upper levels of the troposphere, the upper levels of the Earth's atmosphere now, in a, in a fashion uh, very similar to metastasis to a cancer that's eating away at the upper levels of the of the atmosphere. Um, there aren't any remedial actions uh, that are good enough at this juncture. It's going to happen. So that's why it's, it's so grim. How soon? Now, we're looking at the high winds beginning in about four and a half to six years. Uh, as I mentioned uh, last time we spoke, it'll take it'll take about another year to complete our study. And uh, weather changes already are beginning, as you know. Uh, a year ago they started. Uh, we're going to see bacteriological changes here uh, quickly. Oh, you know what's interesting? You should mention that because another news story that popped up a couple of days ago on Reuters was our government has suddenly cut loose with about $250 million, a quarter billion dollars, to establish 12 early warning centers for new disease around the world, Major. There's a quarter billion dollars, serious amount of money to cut loose with in times like these. Uh, early warning centers for disease, and they're going to be looking for new stuff popping up. And I, I said at the time, these guys have got to know something we don't. Well, uh, I worked with those guys, and most of them are <laughs> virologists. Unfortunately, uh, viruses get most of the money these days. But there are other things, other changes. Uh, bacteria, um, people, there's a lot of uh, species of bacteria. They, they mutate a little bit faster than viruses. And uh, we are not going to be, we as civilized uh, industrial nations are not going to be able to keep up with the kinds of epidemics and pandemics that spring up. We're not going to be able to, to produce vaccines fast enough. They're, they're going to outrun our ability to research them and chase them with vaccines. So we're looking at epidemics and pandemics, too. This is the end of side one. Please leave the cassette exactly where... Have we overused... Um Antibiotics, is that the problem, or is there another profound uh, change that's coming, even, even beyond that problem? It, as far as we know in the company, it appears that, uh, it, it appears that it's an environmental pro, uh, problem, that the environment has so stressed the organisms, the bacteria, uh, uh, that they're, they're subject to, to greater numbers of mutations. Ozone alone, for instance. I mean, ionizing radiation, when it hits us, may produce skin cancer or melanoma. But a uh, ionizing radiation, when it hits a uh, single-celled animal, that's metastasis at, 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 at best. And uh, a lot of mutations, uh, lots of mutations, much more than has been the case in, in the last uh, few millennia. So you're saying that what is occurring to our upper stratosphere, atmosphere, is uh, like a cancer that once begun is going to eat everything alive before it's done. Yeah, no, what I'm saying is that I, I just use that as an analogy. There's many holes. The atmosphere is deteriorating. There are lots of holes that will begin to appear, small ones, letting not just one large ozone hole over the poles. And that has gone unnoticed uh, uh, so far. Well, I know that they've documented thinning of ozone across North America, for example, somewhere between, I'm trying to remember now, 3 and 7%, something like that, that will account for X number more uh, uh, skin cancer and so forth and so on. Uh, really quite serious, but you're talking about additional actual holes. Yes, I'm talking about a lot of uh, scattered shotgun uh, um, 
uh, quilt work, patchwork type of uh, holes in, in the ozone layer. I don't, I'm not certain that everybody realizes uh, how serious this is. Life could not have begun on Earth until that, uh, that ozone layer was in place. Every time amino acids came together to bond, bam, they were hit by, uh, without the ozone layer to protect them, they hit by ionizing radiation, and the links are broken up. So that had to be in place before life could begin, and uh, it needs to be in place if life is to continue. We're not going to evolve as a race, uh, maybe we're not meant to, unless we survive. Are we going to be uh, able to continue to live above ground, or are we going to have to abandon above ground life? Above ground structures will uh, will have to be made. This is why uh, research like Biosphere 2 is important in those kinds of hermetically sealed units. We need, first of all, first and foremost, some type of a habitat to grow crops in, a very large habitat. My company has actually sketched uh, these kinds of habitats that we use to grow crops. That uh, These crops will be protected by high winds and will have enough light um, uh, so that food can be produced by humans. And eventually these, these habitats for, for plants will, will become templates for cities, similar to Biosphere 2. It's important that we start these kinds of projects now so that the technologies can mature, so that we work the bugs out by the time we really need to migrate into these. Below ground structures uh, and above ground structures they're going, are, are going to be necessary. But let's talk about numbers. I can understand you could do such a thing grow crops even under those conditions, harsh as they would be, mm-hmm. but numbers major, You uh, even under the best of conditions with a crash program, right now America feeds itself and a good part of the world. Uh, without, well, we used to, yeah. up until this year. Uh-huh. Yeah, with, without our farm belt uh, a major and with, uh, with what you envision, the numbers of people that could be fed would be astonishingly smaller at best. That's right. I used to be called Dr. Doom at the White House for other reasons, and um, I I don't perpetrate necessarily that uh, appellation, so I'm not going to get into numbers right now. I I am saying that there will be despeciation at rapid rates. Yeah, I I, I can read between the lines very easily. Mm -hmm. Um, You you think that it's uh, in some ways better off that people don't know all of or how the scale of this I think it's difficult for the, for the everyday person now enough. I, I'm without me um, prophesying, uh, if you will, these the kinds of numbers that we see in house. All right. Here's something from our last interview. After you had said most of what you've said now, not all of what we just heard. Uh, you said I said, well, what about you? There you are in. Where are you? You're in uh, Beverly Hills, California. Beverly Hills, of all places. And I said, so what are you going to do personally? And you said, well, I'm moving west and south. And I said, to an island? And you said, something like that. And this was, uh, and I said, well, gee, west, you know, in the water. Um, Not identifying specifically where your company was going to go, but when you gave other people advice, you told them, go north. (laughs) And so it hit me later, you're telling the population to go north, but you're saying, we're going south and west. Um, could you clarify that for us? Or? There's actually a number of uh, different places we've looked at that are sanctuaries. Uh, I, I happen to be uh, heading toward uh, some islands, yes. Uh, but uh, we know that Switzerland, uh, the Swiss Alps, and uh, uh, that area is also a sanctuary. And I'll give you the uh, reasons why. All right. 
Very high mountains and very deep canyons protect against hard winds. That's true. Okay. They also have snowpack and glaciers, which provide a good source of water, uh, you know, unknown quantity. And uh, water is going to be a real problem. So, uh, and then the other reason is those climates are cold, generally speaking. Cold enough so that these tr bacteria remain fairly dormant in those environments because I am telling you that oh. bacteriological mutations are going to be a real big problem. It's nature carrying out bacteriological warfare against us, like Mother Nature or the Earth administering antibiotics to itself, antibio. And uh, and uh, we may be the disease in this case. Yeah, it's very close to what the Native Americans believe, that Earth is almost a living entity um, and that we have insulted uh, Earth and continue to insult Earth. And, in fact, you're saying we have insulted Earth to the degree that it's too late. I, I think, yes, that's correct. I remember once, uh, uh, years ago, I, I found a pelican on the beach with it uh, sitting very still, and a brown pelican. And I, I picked it up, and it uh, bit me a few times. I put it in the trunk of my car. I was felt really bad for it because it was covered with ants, small ants. Oh. And I took it to a vet, and the vet called me up and said, hey, we dusted the pelican with, it was just uh, with a uh, uh, um, a powder, an antibiotic powder, and it's fine now. It was just sick. And all of a sudden I realized that it it knew to land and have those ants eat these lice that were attacking it, these mites uh, that were attacking the, the bird. Yes. If it stood very still, the ants would naturally pick off the lice and eat them, and the pelican could fly away. So I actually prevented the pelican from uh, continuing this process. And it reminded me of the situation, the state of affairs vis-a-vis -vis Gaia or Solaris, whatever you want to call Mother Earth. Well, I've had a number of Native Americans uh, on this show and on Dreamland. And chillingly, they have predicted big winds. Uh, have you, have you, have you uh, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard uh, some of that, but I wonder, have you consulted with Native Americans? Have you traded any information with them, or are you... No, never. We, are re we really rely on our own methods uh, for this. And years ago, we were picking up winds. It took us a long time, by process of elimination and direct knowledge, because that's what remote viewing is, to ascertain where these winds were coming from. I mean, we, we ran the gamut of, gee, is this nuclear war? Is it uh, volcanic activity? Is it a pole shift? On and on and on. And we could not find the answer until we, we popped up in the upper levels of the atmosphere and said, uh-oh, uh, there's no atmosphere or it's chaos up here. So we had to check and double-check our work. Otherwise, I would not be uh, telling you on the air. Yes. Well, I would think that governments, uh, the governments of the world, uh, particularly in view of your track record and your history, would be more than a little interested in what you're saying tonight. W have you had any contact? A little, a little, but it's going to be, uh, we're ahead of our time. This uh, kind of technology is just out of the closet. It's young. Uh, it'll be on the streets as soon as we can get it on the streets uh, uh, with as many young people as possible. That's our target group, particularly high school kids and individuals in their 20s. Our generation, we think, is a lost cause. Not totally, but uh, we're, we're staid and stoic, Art. I'm uh, your age, mm -hmm. or thereabouts, and uh, we don't. Old habits die hard. They do. Yes, they do. Um, so you would advise people, 
move to colder climates, prepare, uh, stow away food. Uh, what advice would you give? Right, well, uh, another uh, thing is a colder climate or an isolated islands are good because islands are isolated, generally speaking. They're isolated from a lot of traffic, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of human traffic, a lot of uh, um, a, a source of bacteria. They're geographically isolated. And if they get a lot of rain, then you've got fresh water. Um, if they have a lot of uh, underground uh, lava tubes or caves, then you have protection from high winds when they occur. Sure. And they have a lot of sunlight because they're in uh, they're in lower latitudes to get experience a lot of sun. And food can grow very quickly, grow back quickly. Now, I was going to say, uh, if these winds descend on the central latitudes, then there will be climate changes elsewhere as a result as as a result of that. And so areas that previously have not been able to grow food might be able to, or areas that have been arid will be wet, or what other changes will result from this? Not sure. Just storms, vicious storms and, and chaos. I, I, I would not take a, a too much of a chance in trying to predict what might change and where might change. Uh, um, uh, because there'll be no continuity for crop growing unless you get crops into a place where they're protected and, and, and the light is maintained and controlled. Key phrase is chaos, then. Key phrase is survival. We, we need to be able to plan for survival. Food, growing food, uh, the way we do now, is, is not survival-oriented uh, anymore. So rather than worrying about uh, storing food up and having a big cache of food, as people would be tempted to do, you're, you're more inclined to advise people to devise, devise safe and new ways to grow that food because you're going to have to last a long time. Yes, as communities and as governments, responsible governments. Yes, that's what I'm suggesting. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's, that's, um, that's based upon a technology that taxpayers paid for, which is still very, very uh, unknown and in some uh, circles construed, construed to be the occult. So this is a, this is a hard sell uh, on my part. It's much easier for us to find Unabombers and things like that and convince people that it's real than it is to try to sell doom and gloom. Well, uh, I would think the people that know your track record, the people that you worked with listening to this, uh, their eyes must be getting wide and their heart uh, beat must be quickening. That was an old boy network consisting of captains of industry that did contract with the military-industrial complex. Yes, many government officials are there too, many congressmen, and so there is there is some uh, uh, there is an audience for that kind of thing. Yes. What bothers me is that uh, of what you speak, all the first signs are already there. For example, the hurricane season last year, the unending. I watch the Weather Channel by the day, and I've I've watched. But weather has been a hobby of mine for years. I used to chase tornadoes, and there are tornado boxes all over the place. Tornadoes. And tornadoes and tornadoes as I have never seen before across North America. Again, the uh, the beginning of this, I take it. Well, we're looking at first economic catastrophe here. You know, we, let's face it, uh, we're not going to have the money to be able to uh, repair the kinds of damages that any more of these vicious storms will cause. So, our economy will be shot first before uh, our our infrastructure, the rest of our infrastructure. Uh, it's, it's going to get grim, uh, particularly in the next uh, four and a half to six years. We're looking at very, very serious conditions environmentally. Now, I saw somebody uh, ask you on, on one of the programs that was on the videotape. I uh, think that might have been on the Discovery uh, Channel, The Real X-Files, The True Story of America's Psychic Spy. That's what they called it, The Real X-Files. Mm -hmm. 
uh, they said that, uh, or uh, they asked you, well, okay, then uh, why haven't you predicted the stock market? Why haven't you predicted lottery numbers? And your answer was that those are very small spikes in the future and that they're much harder to read and that you see the larger events much more clearly. Is that true? Very clearly. Our, our students early in the game can, uh, can take a look at large earthquakes, volcanism, those kinds of things uh, uh, quite easily because the event's happening now. It's a huge event. Uh, all of us are events, really, but that's an event that uh, geological, geophysical events are very big. It's as if our unconscious is alerting us to, for survival reasons to be on the lookout for these kind of things. Like mm. maybe we're, we're tuned uh, into uh, uh, cataclysms of a geophysical nature more than we are other things. But that's just speculation on my part. All right. Uh, not speculation is something uh, we're going to talk about next. And as you know, I live uh, adjacent to, pro in fact, we have the closest broadcast facility to an area called Area 51. It has been an ob the object of great fascination for American people for a very long time. And you know something about Area 51, don't you? I'll give you the scoop on 51. <laughs> All right. Coming up next, you've got several minutes, so relax. Major Ed Dames from SciTech is my guest. There is more, if you think you can handle it, coming next. This is CBC. to SciTech's Major Dames, and uh, Major Area 51, everybody's dying to know. What are they doing? What have they done? What are they doing at Area 51? All right. Area 51 is a test site. They don't build anything there per se. There may be modifications, but remember, it's a testing area. Right. Things are built somewhere else and brought in. Okay. Uh there's a reason why there's that kind of secrecy uh, exists, and uh, and I'm going to talk about that, uh, that level of secrecy. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with nuclear weapons and defending the nation against nuclear weapons. Uh, you need to have things that are protected, uh, operationally secure, as well as secure in other ways, too. Let me be specific. There is a set of satellites out there that, that many of your listeners know about called DSPs, Deep Space Platforms. These satellites look down on the planet Earth, <clears throat> particularly places other than the United States, right. for signs of an intercontinental ballistic missile launch, right. as well as other missile launches. Right. They can see the hot flame of a missile, and they can see other things that are classified. Right. Uh, signatures and, and uh, footprints of the type of activity that would lead to the signature, the setting up of the missile, the, uh, the things that are associated with that kind of a thing. Now, we have a problem, though, because once a missile is launched, it is extremely difficult to interdict that missile. To right. we, by the time we get around to doing it, we may or may not be able to intercept, and if we do, we don't know whether we're intercepting a decoy and wasting precious anti-ballistic missile defenses against a decoy or the real thing. We have real problems there. So, mm -hmm. what to do, what to do. If we see somebody allegedly gearing up to launch one, do we launch a first strike or, or preempt it? If someone is getting ready to launch, a, a potential adversary is getting ready to launch a, pre, a preemptive strike against the United States, and all indications to our intelligence community, our indications and warning community say that that's going to happen, what do we do? Well, the answer is we, we wait. 
we wait until we see the missile take off. Now, that means we have to have an effective anti-missile, anti-ballistic missile defense for the United States, right. or we have to do something else. And that's something else, what goes on in Area 51. There is another way to, to, to defend uh, or attempt to defend, which is uh, almost impossible, against ballistic missiles once they go ballistic and they, once they enter the, the Earth's atmosphere over North America. Uh, we really can't defend effectively against them. But there's something else that we can do. If we can get to a missile launch site fast enough before an ICBM gets into the upper levels of the Earth's atmosphere, mm -hmm. we can kill it there in the enemy's own country and potential adversary's own land. Now, you have to move really fast to do that, and you run into all kinds of problems. But when um, people like Ben Rich and the Skunk Works back uh, years ago got together to build some really uh, esoteric devices, um, satellites and SR-71s and all kinds of wonderful things, they pulled together a group of very eclectic thinkers, brilliant engineers, who really didn't work well as a group. But if you really babysit these individuals and you're a good project manager, individuals, very brilliant engineers working together, they can come up with objects that, uh, for all intents and purposes, appear to be alien. And uh, that is, in fact, what's happening at Area 51. You're seeing the limits of our technological base being pushed because people, these engineers, theoretically, can develop all kinds of things that can exceed uh, most of our wildest dreams, but we're limited by our material sciences predominantly to what we can build. But still, when you build something that flies like a bat out of hell and it's coated with diamond-coated surfaces, very expensive, can move at, at levels of Mach 18, something very fast. You can take it off from the United States or U.S.-held territory beyond the ground and in the area in the neighborhood of an ICBM that has just taken off. Kill it, disable it, and come back home. That's I mean, what's going on there. This is the nation. I, I believe it. I this, believe it. This I is think. our nation's Sunday punch. Uh, we've been talking for I don't know how long and getting rumors and more than rumors of craft that are flying in from the Pacific at incredible speeds. Well, and these, I mean, we have some very brilliant engineers in, in, in America, and they have been, they've been asked to come up with things that can, that, that was their task. We have to be able to disable or kill uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles while they're still rising up above a potential adversary's airspace. God, that's absolutely fascinating. So you're saying with a fast response, you could get one of these incredible craft to a location where an ICBM is rising and knock that damn thing down uh, above the country Moving that launched like, it. That's right. Moving like a bat out of the hell. Now there's a lot of problems technologically and engineering-wise when you do that. For instance... You have an ionized plasma that surrounds, in many cases, surrounds uh, the shell, the skin right. of a vehicle that's moving that fast, unmanned, right. by the way. Right. And uh, now how do you communicate with it? So that's something you have to uh, overcome. And so like the re-entering astronauts that, that go through a blackout period. That's uh, correct. That's the, the, the speeds get uh, like at that or greater. There's uh, another problem. One of the reasons that the, uh, things are so classified in this arena are because of the toxicity of the fuels. The Environmental Protection Agency would never allow an operation like that. These fuels are so poisoned, so very, very poisoned, that uh, they could not essentially be used anywhere. Well, they again, disposed of effectively. Again, there's there's something there because there is a lawsuit underway right now 
by a number of people who have worked at Area 51. Yes, my my uh, vice president, uh, Jonina Durif, has, has informed me of that uh, a couple of weeks ago. So and, uh, it's underway, they, and they, they claim they were toxically poisoned. Uh, yeah, the fuels are, there's a mixture of two fuels, actually. There's a, a spontaneous combustion, uh, the Aurora, for instance, the uh, the engines outside of the, uh, the craft after it gets to a certain modality of operation. And there are follow-on vehicles that are more esoteric, that use the attempted uh, electrogravitational propulsion, those kind of things that people see uh, hovering about the uh, Area 51. All these, uh, physics is physics, and, and uh, we'll build stuff that, that can increase our capabilities to deliver this kind of Sunday punch because that threat's still very real out there. Aliens? Nope. Sorry. Are there extraterrestrials out and about? You bet, but not there at Area 51. All right. Uh, I've got a series of questions posed by facts, and there's a lot of good ones here. Wait, I'm not done yet. All right. Oh, well, by all means, go. Okay. Uh, about the, the government's hidden UFO agenda, there's one other thing I'd like to, to talk about here, and, and that is what we're hiding. If you remember Howard Bloom's book, Out There, Yes. Which was fairly poorly written, but he talked about uh, a UFO working group in the Pentagon. Right. I was a member of that. We even had a cover name for it to disguise ourselves. Uh, we called ourselves the Advanced Theoretical Physics Working Group. Oh. And, we, and essentially, we had no charter to look at the UFO phenomenon. There was no money. There was no charter. We tried to hide our activities under uh, General Abramson's Star Wars program, the SDI program essentially attempting to develop uh, software that could recognize something uh, differentiated between alien, airliner, satellite, those kinds of things. Um, and those members were military officers. I was the youngest, the, the junior officer at the time, and there were members of the military uh, industrial uh, uh, community that were there too, uh, Lockheed Missile and Space, McDonnell Douglas, uh, companies of that ilk. And we were a bunch of wild and crazy guys who were sincerely interested in looking at this phenomenon, but could not coax money out of presidents or uh, services to really do anything with it. Why? Because there's no charter. After Project Blue Book and uh, a few follow-on projects, there's really no national security threat there. And the Department of Defense and the intelligence agencies are tasked with protecting the nation against other nations or potential adversaries. Right. There isn't any charter, and so there's no money for that. It has to be put into the civilian in a community research. Charter doesn't exist um, congressionally or otherwise to look at UFO things. Now, our satellites did pick up photos, that uh, pick up things, glowing objects hovering above bases, uh, both ours and, and other countries. And, and those are real photos. They're really glowing objects that, uh, that defy explanation and are enigmatic that are have been captured on satellite uh, photography, but they will not be released because they cannot be released. Number one, the place that we were looking at, those kinds of data are classified, what we are looking at at any given time. Major, uh, there was a 2020 program, I think it was 2020, mm -hmm. in which um, they documented um, objects that had appeared above Soviet missile silos and as a matter of fact, um, one of them activated the launch sequence for a Soviet uh, ICBM. And they, they continued to document that there was this object above, and, and they went into launch sequence. There's no question about it. The Russians totally freaked out, tore everything apart. I mean everything. Every panel out of there after this incident tried to find out what had happened. 
and there were no answers, no answers. And there have been stories of objects hovering above our sites as well. That's true. But I want to get back to the that, – that is correct. Those, those events have happened. They are real. They are extraterrestrial in nature. I don't want to go too deeply into that now, except I want to make sure that we understand that the government isn't hiding anything vis-a-vis that. The, the satellite photography that can't be released – it's because of, we do not want to give away, as I didn't, I don't watch a lot of television, but if they suggested that some of these photographs can't be released because it would, it would divulge the capabilities of the satellite, then that's correct. That's the reason that this is so classified. Some of those. And that's of the only evidence that we have, other than arts parts of, uh, of <laughs> allegedly alien uh, activity. Yes. Now, there have been very, very enigmatic things happen at U.S. bases, but they remain unexplained. And any government that purports to have control of its populace or, or maintain control of its citizenry is not going to release a report that says, we don't know what this is. You and I both understand the reasons why for that. Why uh, that let me tell you a little story about Gordon Cooper, the astronaut. Uh, he said that he was at um, Edwards Air Force Base when a military film uh, team was filming something or another, uh, regular duty, and they were out on a flight line, and they saw a craft come down, three legs extend, the damn thing landed on the ground. They kept rolling. They had film of it. This is, this is Gordon Cooper now. And they started moving toward this craft. It rose into the air. The three landing uh, um, uh, wheels or whatever it was uh, extended into the craft, and it just shot straight up. Well, they had all this on film. They sent it to Washington, according to Cooper, where it disappeared for all time. Well, that sounds like one of ours. We we had we've had things like that for many years. So why do you think the the I mean, really, we retired the SR-71. What do you think we replaced that with? We've been testing uh, little objects like that with tripod landing gears for for quite a while. What aliens use are are something very very different on, and uh, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't it, look it's like a good a point, and after all, it did come down at Edwards, which is an Air Force base. That's correct. That's so you're, you're saying that's one of ours? Yeah, yeah, that was one of ours. That was one of our prototypes, and, and uh, that was the beginning of the end of the of Blackbird program. There's a fellow down in uh, Australia, Stan Dale. Uh, I don't know if you know of Stan or have heard of him, but Stan uh, says a lot of things about our craft, just like you're saying, that we have these things and have had them for a long time. We take them off from one place and we land them somewhere else, just like we used to do uh, uh, with the SR-71. But we've continued to to, to buy in as, as a populist to these conspiracy theories. I mean, uh, I and, and uh, my vice president announced at a uh, UFO congress in, in Germany that the Santilli alien is a hoax. It's a bag filled under pressure with a pump inside. Uh, pressure's there so that when you cut it open, it looks like uh, fluids are oozing out. You notice that there was no sound on the tapes. Actually, I have not right. seen these tapes. There's no sound because uh, if there were, you hear the pump, the little pump that's pumping in that, keeping that bag pumped up. Huh. Fascinating. But we we keep uh, wanting to believe that. And meanwhile, uh, there's something else happening. And by the way, uh, my company is working on a report that we'll uh, put out on our website uh, about Lalande 21185, the star that has a solar system. Uh, Yes. Of the new solar system. Yes, about eight light years or yes, a little bit. Yes, we were to, uh, begun to take a look at that, and that's kind of an easy target for us. So we, we, we're we beginning to sketch the planets around there. There are three planets. One is a gas giant. Uh, two other small ones have their own moons, one five, another seven moons. 
and we're beginning to explore the the, uh, the surfaces of each one of those planets. The two small ones, planets we call them planet Enoch and planet Aaron. Uh, planet Enoch appears to have organic matter. We'll take a look at that and uh, describe it for uh, exobiologists, exogeologists. Planet Fiona, uh, we call the gas giant. Uh, that'll be the last uh, one that we survey. With all you have to say about what has occurred to Earth and the insult to Earth, uh, shouldn't we be um, expanding our space program to look uh, toward other planets possibly uh, that could be inhabited um, by by humans who don't really want to live underground? Well, uh, if, one, uh, if one thinks uh, that there might be a federation out there, um, I'm not so sure that uh, Federation would allow us to go out and trash another planet, Art. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we might have to take care of uh, <laughs> our own business here. Yes. Actually, there, there. I, I mentioned an in-house project that, that SciTech has, Project Starman, and um, I, I can't talk about that at this juncture. But even but in a general way, Mars. Mars. That's all I can say. Watch Mars. We'll watch Mars. All right. Uh, I, I do have some really interesting questions for somebody like you. One of them is, do you have anything to say about the nature of our soul? Uh, he who looks at the kinds of things you look at might be able to answer that question. Do we as humans have a soul? Do we have something that lives past the physical life, do you believe? Uh, yes. That, uh, that field these days, the buzzword is, is continuity of consciousness. Yes. That's, that's what the study is. That's right. It is one of the most fascinating projects I've ever been involved in. The jury's still out within our own ranks uh, as to what's going on. But the answer to the question is yes, there's something that survives uh, uh, death. Uh, our minds slough off, however, which is an interesting development. When we remote view a dying person, we see the, something split off that we call the soul, and we cannot track that. It's beyond our capabilities. We know of other places that have very strange life forms that we think might be where people are reconstructed, but we have no chain of custody. So we, there's a, there is a discontinuity between what leaves a, uh, a dying body and what we see in other places which we suspect might be worlds where personalities are recreated. So there's a sort of dead zone to you. There is a, a broken chain of custody and, and tracking one's uh, a personality essence, if you would. But our minds slough off. That's a very interesting phenomenon. It is. Ma major, hold on. We, okay. we, we're at the bottom of the hour. Stay right there. Sidetex Major Ed Dames. I'm Art Bell, and this is the American CBC Radio Network. This is the end of side one. Please leave now to Major Ed Dames. Major, uh, you've affirmed we have a soul, and that when we die, you kind of lose track of it, um, as in a reentry period, and then. It may be, is it your view that it is recycled, or do you have any thoughts on what occurs? I don't have a lot of thoughts. It's a very diff difficult thing for us to do. It may uh, seem odd that a military team would have applied itself uh, under the, the, the rubric of uh, 
advanced training to this type of thing, but I was looking for really extreme challenges, and this was the most extreme one I could find. Oh, yes. It is the most extreme, the biggest question for mankind. All right, let's try this one out. Those who can look ahead and see big uh, spikes uh, ahead of us to the right, uh, does such person dare look ahead to their own death? You know, it's funny you should ask that. In training, uh, we we have to be careful. Uh, a lot of times our, our trainees um, will, I will actually give them their own lives, uh, what we call a personal trajectory. And I have to be careful that uh, they don't uh, uh, go through the protocols too rapidly because they'll be perceiving their, their own death. And that can be a discomforting uh, thing. But yes, uh, you can perceive what appears to be, uh, with high probability, very, very prominent milestones or peaks uh, in your trajectory, including uh, the end of your life. Have you looked at yours? Uh, no, I haven't. I don't think I would either. I, I may uh, someday. I just uh, think that I'd rather not, not know no. right now. I, I understand it's that. Not that I'm a chicken, but... It's, uh, I think I'd rather spend my time thinking about other things. All right, let's look left again. Somebody down in Texas wants to know if you've ever looked back toward the big spike that would have been the presence of Jesus on earth that time. Yes, it's a training target. Uh, the crucifixion is a training target, and uh, the, the per there was a real person, yes, a real man. He was here. Yes, Calvary is a training target that we have. It's uh, it's an advanced training target. I sometimes give it as the student's first solo. That's where they, their skills are up to par enough on day seven or eight of training where they have to work alone and uh, I leave the room. So they work against unknowns as well as uh, knowns. All right. If you can look to the left to when he was here, do you look to the right to his return? Mm, we have not. We have not done that. There's so well, many things uh, that they use this technology against. Uh, and that, um, actually, I haven't looked at that uh, at all. It's not something that it's in our thousands of training files and operational files. That is not there. All right. Uh, something current, uh, Major. There is, and there have been reports of, a creature. I'm sure you've uh, heard. The Chupacabra. Yes, sir, I have to ask. Uh, it's in the docket. It's in the docket, and when we uh, when we work it, we'll uh, provide it as a report on our website. Oh, you will? Yes. Uh, would you give people, and I'm sure that uh, Keith is quickly linking to your site, but what is your web address again, please? Uh, our web address is uh, www.transition-3000.de. That is the... That uh, is Transition 3000, and that where that particular uh, distribution channel uh, is deals exclusively with SciTech uh, bulletins, reports, and studies. They'll be available uh, quite shortly. All right. Um, what about Tunguska? That must have been a big spike in the past. Uh, the the event that. Uh, may have uh, killed off the dinosaurs and uh, a big transition point for Earth. Um, have you ever looked at that? Now, Tunguska was uh, in the, about 1906 or 8, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. Oh, yes, you are correct. I'm yeah, sorry. Not I, the, I meant, you're thinking I meant the, of, the, of the KT. KT event, yes. Uh, event. Uh, yes, uh, it looks as if the KT event uh, did, did uh, kill off uh, the dinosaurs uh, or 
or possibly you know, lots of things during the Jurassic. But it did something else, too, that's very interesting. It appears to have sideswiped Mars to the point where it uh, it it really disabled the atmosphere and uh, sort of uh, set into motion a dynamic which robbed Mars of its atmosphere. There is thought to be, and I had a physicist on the show last night, I know you heard part uh, of it. Yes, I, I enjoyed listening to part of that. And he said that they think there may be a very, uh, a, a very great deal of ice just under the Martian surface, that which used to be water that was above ground. Now, we're getting dangerously close to your Starman program that you seem very disinclined to talk about. Yeah, that's what I thought. So, um, so think Mars. I guess we better settle for think Mars. All right. Um, I have asked a lot of questions. Uh, you, you'll re recall that we've, uh, with both the, uh, the Russians and the Americans have lost their eyes uh, and ears around the planet Mars and... Uh, I, I think you remember that uh, in August, a few years ago, we lost a uh, spacecraft. I recall. And uh, SciTech has, has published a uh, report. We actually did a contract for the Russians. The Russians approached SciTech asking what happened to Phobos II uh, in 1989. Uh, what that, This was a spacecraft the Russians launched uh, called Phobos II, second in a series, and uh, it was uh, it met its demise shortly after entering Martian um, mm -hmm. orbit in uh, the spring of 1989. And uh, SciTech was contracted to look at and see what happened to that spacecraft. And what did you see? Well, there was a, uh, a very interesting machine that rose up from the surface of the planet to meet yet another machine that was in orbit, a different type. Both these machines are quite almost sentient vehicles, if you will, unmanned, yes. actually converged on the Phobos II, and one actually came in contact with it. And uh, the rest is in the report. I'll have that report out on the, uh, available for listeners uh, in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. um, all right. You train people to do what you do, and you do so now in a very intensive Seven-day course. Right? Nine days. Nine, nine oh, it's days. It's actually nine days, ten. The students are required to take a mid-course mid break. Required to. In other words, it's so damn intensive, they've got to take the break. Yeah, they do. It not only implies it, it, it changes their lives forever. You, one can no longer look at uh, at at things the way that uh, Or tests that you apply to those who would wish to take training with you. There is uh, the training. The training is expensive. It's forty-five hundred dollars, so that uh, uh, limits uh, a lot of people. But our general litmus test is that a student must be diligent, confident, and patient. That's all we need. Um, are there a lot of people who don't make it through? Mm, only a few. Only a few, and those are the ones that lack one of the aforementioned. Mm-hmm. Um, are there we need stable people. They have to be emotionally stable. Uh, they're going to be undergoing some... Uh, one, they, it'll start off as, oh, my God, on day uh, two or three, this really works, yes. to the point where they perceive things that they may wish they'd never seen. May wish they'd never seen. Is it... Is it what do we know about the nature of the threat of the future, Major? Um, knowing some of the things that you know, can we change them? And if we can, should we? 
I don't know. I, I assume that corporate, corporately, as a race, we, we can change things because I know that uh, we have a certain range of uh, response uh, to change. Uh, we can change things within a certain range as individuals. So I assume that that extends to us corporately. Whether or not we should is an eschatological uh, problem, and it is, uh, yes. uh, I just can't answer that. I'm just an average guy. Um. Knowing some events that are coming, and I, I don't know whether you can, you know, you probably cannot perceive the smaller events, but have you uh, corporately uh, experimented with the ability to modify what appears to be the unmodifiable? That's rather tautological uh, when, you, when you think about it, because uh, how would we know, really? We don't have a way of double-checking. We run into a double paradox if we do that. If we remote view something to get feedback on something that we would plan upon doing, mm -hmm. did we, in fact, uh, affect it? What came first, you know, uh, the chicken or the egg? Did we, in fact, affect the event? Or did we effect the event? I, uh, and that's difficult. It gives me headaches to think about. Um, I don't know how much leeway we have in changing the future. Um, it may be that the things that we as remote viewers perceive are only those things that have reached 100% likelihood in some other dimension and fallen out uh, as data with us. We may not indeed be able to perceive things that, that uh, are less than 100% probable. I, I don't have the answers to those questions yet, nor will I probably ever. I, we do not do research. We are, we'll allow our students to do that in the future. We're strictly applied. Okay, Gordon Michael Scallion is a good friend of mine. He's been on the show many times. He does prophecy based on what he describes as seeing three TV screens or three visions. He, he likens it to three TV screens with two of them being very pale pictures, and one of them uh, being bright and very colorful. Can you imagine that uh, with what you do as sort of a uh, the more likely future, the more likely scenario? No, we're, we're, it, it's linear in our terms. It's time and, and uh, trajectories, uh, state-space trajectories of uh, entities, in this case Earth and, and humans, we see as linear. We don't, we are, what we perceive as remote viewers vis-a-vis -vis the future of the Earth in, in terms of the next hundred years is grim as hell. There's nothing bright about it. What do you say? Except to say that our children's children will have to rebuild the planet, and that's a, that's a character-building uh, opportunity for them. Do you have children? Yes, I have two, a 12- and a 14-year-old, and uh, I have uh, uh, two stepdaughters. Given the opportunity to have more children, would you? Yes. Yes, I would. So you have hope? I have Oh, I, I never said I did not have hope. I just said that uh, we're going to be running a gauntlet here, and it's, going to, it's, a really, it's an adventurous time to be alive. Uh, it really is. It's... It, it's uh, like I say, there's some real character-building uh, opportunities ahead for us. I mean, the big things are the ones that really build character. That's a personal opinion. Earth changes, uh, major earthquakes, that sort of thing. What do you see? Beyond all that, humans are more durable. We go, un we appear to undergo some changes. Humans appear on the, uh, a couple of generations from now to be what we would call more durable. Uh, we are a little bit tougher. 
uh, thick skin allegorically. Um, in terms of earth changes, only what I, well, only what what my company stands by, and that is again the, the high winds and the and the the atmospheric geological uh, geological changes that, that I've already talked about. And the babies. That's just a piece of the action there. That's one thing. And uh, when um, by telling mothers about this problem and potential problem and alerting them to the fact that and then when it'll it'll the flag will go up when babies start to die. If this if this knowledge gets out, if this kind of predictors gets out, and that's why it's so important for us for SciTech to be correct in the public eye. Yes. My corporation has really got to double check and triple check its work before we go public. If we ha if we uh, attain that degree of credibility in the public eye, we really will be able to save lives. Not all of them, and people will still poo-poo the the, the the very existence of this kind of type of thing. But others will listen, yes. and will scare people enough. Will scare mothers and fathers enough in some instances where they will take their babies uh, off of uh, you know, hormone injected milk. Mother's milk, then. Mother's milk uh, is the way to go. Yeah. And otherwise, uh, consider a move to a northern latitude. Uh, I would uh, a northern latitude, or as communities start thinking about how uh, how communities could could build structures uh, to weather these storms and to grow food. All right, Major. It has been a serious, seriously interesting night, and. Um, a lot of people are going to reflect very carefully on all you've said, and it's going to have scared a lot of people. But I guess you mean to do that, don't you? Uh, again, I was called Dr. Doom at the White House, and uh, I guess I earned that. Uh, but the truth packs a responsibility, and uh, it isn't always uh, always pleasant and fun and entertaining. We as Americans love to be entertained. Well, yes. This is uh, not very entertaining, but it's very true. And the tools that we teach that, again, tax dollars paid for, for so many years of research and operations, uh, it's a tool that can discern direct knowledge and, and truth. And uh, we'll try to get that in the hands of, of as many young people as possible in the future. The, uh, the people who uh, directed those tax dollars, if they heard this this morning, and I presume many of them did, are they, are they really upset with you for this? I think a couple may be and are already, but others uh, like uh, Stan Spielturner, former head of the CIA, would not be at all. We tend in our 11th hour of life to, to, to change. Oftentimes, I, I have a little practical exercise. I move along to the moment just before I die, and I look back along to the left, and I ask myself at that point, uh, problematically, is there anything I regret? And if I can find something I regret, then I make sure I take note of that so I don't let it happen. I don't have any roads not taken uh, that I regret not taking. That's a good exercise to do. So, uh, in other words, the old saying is operative, live every day as though it was your, your last. I mean, That's close. <laughs> and, uh, and if I do have to go soon, then uh, I want to go out in style. I do want one of those Art Bell watches. Watches. All right. Well, I will see to it, Major. And I want to thank you for being here this morning. Uh, the pleasure is mine. All right. Take care. And I'm sure if you continue to listen, you will hear quite a bit of reaction. Mine, too. Man. Want a copy of this program? 1-800-917-4278. 1-800-917-4278.
I'd say this is a moment for this particular bumper, wouldn't you? You're listening to CBC. CBC. 